from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. In the 1970s, Carlton Douglas Reidenauer was a teenager in Queens, New York, and went to his first hip-hop show. The music hadn't started yet, and he didn't quite know what to make of the equipment he saw on stage, as he told an interviewer in 2001. I was totally confused. I was like, why do they need two turntables? Uh, in case the one over there breaks down, this person is very prepared. He figured it out, had his aha moment, and in short order became a rap superstar himself. Reidenauer is much better known by his stage name, Chuck D. And Chuck D is, of course, the leader of the group Public Enemy. 30 years ago this week, Public Enemy released It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. That album was aggressively political and generally considered one of the most important ever. Our story of the Public Enemy album that dropped this week in 1988 begins with a longtime fan of the band. I absolutely remember the first time I heard Public Enemy. My name is Tracy McGregor. I am a former editor and vice president of The Source magazine. I was one of those that you know, I still have my cassette copy of Yo Bum Rush the Show. He was bum rushing in on the industry, so to speak. I'm Hank Shockley, creator of Public Enemy and creator of The Bomb Squad. That record was to me was the prelude of what was to come, which was it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. That first album dropped, and Public Enemy wasn't getting the props that they deserved, you know, from the media. They weren't getting radio play. Folks were criminalizing Chuck D based on the imagery and, 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 you know, the things that he was saying, even though it wasn't criminal, you know. I think they underestimated. I don't think they recognized that this was an educated black man that was really able to contextualize what was going on. And so when they came back, he came back harder and more focused and more politicized. Yo, Chuck, these honey dippers are still front on us. So now we can do this, because we always do this. <laughs> yeah, boy. Babe, how low can you go? Death row. What a brother know once again. Fact gives the incredible. Rhyme animal, the uncannibal. Public enemy number one. Five folks that freeze. And I got numb. Right now, all around us, and so compelling you never miss the fact there's no melody, is a music that is all beat, strong beat, and talk. It's rap music. First of all, they never really considered rap music music. And then they said, well, it's a kid's music. I remember when George Harrison once called rap music computerized rot. If it was a Lennon or McCartney, I would have felt dissed, but... <laughs> had to do something fast, 
We had to do it now, and we had to do it cheap. So we decided to just make records from the records that I already have. Our sole intent was to destroy music. Sonically, we set out to do that, to redefine what people thought of as music. And since we didn't have a bass, a guitar, and things of that nature, we had to figure out how to use samples in a most creative way. I have 10,000 records, so it's a very tedious and incredibly arduous task to just go through and listen to every little hit, little squeal, vocal snippet. That freedom is a road seldom traveled by the multitude. Every little possible thing that we can possibly use in order to create this record. Some of the sampling is you want people to know that it's a sample, and then the other parts of the process is that you don't want them to know. There's many ways of dirtying up a sample. The first thing that we did was what is known today as bit crushing, and we would use the Akai S900. And that machine had the ability to not only play at 12 bits, but you can also reduce those 12 bits down to 8, to 4, to even 2, for example you get a graininess that happens with the sample, and it becomes less distinct, but it takes on a new characteristic. There was many different techniques that was used. We would take a small, very small snippet of something and loop it bit, 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 bit. We would take filtering. We would truncate sounds so that it become unrecognizable if you played it in such a short burst. These are techniques that we had to develop. We found ways of using the technology, meaning the drum machines, to create the sounds that we wanted to do. Yes, the rhythm, the rebel. Without applause, I'm lowering my level. The hard drama, will you never win them in? You want styling? You know it's time again. The rules of sampling in the time when we was creating the PE records were, there were none. This was new territory that nobody kind of like had any kind of understanding of what the legal ramifications was. So we kind of like went underneath the radar. That's the reason why we decided to use so many of them is so that we want to get the feeling and the understanding of, wow, you can use all of your records and not just one or two. What y'all think y'all doing bringing us to call for this time and saying we still in peace? Y'all can't copyright no beats, man. Your judges ain't crazy, man. Yeah, Come on, we gotcha. Now there really is no set limit on how much you can charge for a sample. So if you look back on what we were doing, if everyone had that frame of mind, the cost of the records that we were doing would be so astronomical that it wouldn't be worth doing it in the first place. They say that we stole this. I rebel with a raised fist. Can we get a witness? Hey, The album is powerful. It is militant. It is 
unapologetically black. We would promote gigs and put Malcolm X on the cover of flyers and some cat would roll up to us and say, yo, who, who's this Malcolm the 10th? That's when we say it's important to see if we can use the music as it reaches people and just fill it with something that means something. Freedom is a road seldom traveled by the multitude. Public enemy number one. Unless you had parents who were in the movement, you didn't know who Asada Shakur was. You didn't know who Malcolm X was. You knew who Martin Luther King was, but you didn't know about these other folks. Public Enemy raised our awareness, you know, to where, okay, we start doing our research, we're connecting the dots and realizing, you know what, we had revolutionaries who weren't standing for this. Study our music, you get our history by default. The samples had to have a deeper meaning. We wanted to feel like it was a revolution. Too black, too strong. So in order for that to be possible, the sounds that we had to choose had to resonate that vibration. It's not just about the textures or the timbre. It's also about the emotional content. Have you forgotten that once we were brought here, we were robbed of our name, robbed of our language. We lost our religion, our culture, our God. And many of us, by the way we act, we even lost our minds. You can trigger minds into not being so much asleep by using art, using song to make them think progressively against what's wrong or what's ignored. In the never-ending search for the base heads, we've come to a new hiding place. Yeah, that's right, Wall Street. Check out the justice and how they run it. Spelling, smelling, sniffing, riffing, and brothers trying to get swifting. Some of their own, rob a home, wild some shrivel a bone, like comatose walking around. Please don't confuse this with the sound. I'm talking about face, 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 face. He called out the drug dealers. He called out the users. And then he gave us the visual. This is Chuck D. You're checking out Yo! MTV Raps. This is Lucy's house, and I'm going to show you what happens to families when one of the members becomes a base head. I see it on their faces. First come, first serve faces. Standing on line, checking the time. Homeboys playing the curve, the same ones they used to do early. People like to turn a blind eye to the ugliness that happens out here, and he shined a light on it. It's my obligation and duty to use the medium that reaches out to the people to bring a certain point or issue that's tucked to the back up for discussion, and that's what we did. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it and said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn, I said never. Here's a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. I wasn't with it, but just that very minute it occurred to me. The suckers had authority. People weren't talking about this type of stuff on this level. You know, remember, we're post-civil rights generation. Chuck D. reinvigorated the movement. See, we were languishing. Things still weren't right in our community, but we had no voice. We weren't organized. 
Chuck D single-handedly raised our consciousness and made us aware that the things that we were seeing and feeling were real. The FBI was tapping my telephone. I never live alone. I never walk alone. My posse's always ready and they're waiting in my zone. Although I live the life that of a resident, but I've been knowing the scheme that of the president. Tapping my phone. Who's screws abuse? I stand accused of doing harm. America, based on the counterintelligence program, has something to do with the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. We know the FBI's relationship with the black community, COINTELPRO. Chuck D knew that. CIA, FBI, all intelligence lies. When I say it, they get alarmed because I'm louder than a bomb. Folks weren't ready for that. <laughs> Folks think they're woke now. Like Chuck D was woke AF back then, 30 years ago and woke up an entire nation. To those that disagree, it causes static for the original Asiatic man. Dream of the earth, and was here first with some devils preventers from being known. But you check out the books they own. Even nations, they know it, they don't want to show it, yo. But it's proven in fact. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. All the clips of Chuck D in that story are from a 2001 interview he did at the museum in Washington for the public television show Speaking Freely. Our story was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio, who, by the way, just won a big award at the New York Festival's International Radio Awards for a great piece she did last year for Studio 360. It is the hidden history of the 60s pop hit Ode to Billy Joe, written and performed by the singer Bobby Gentry. Here is Jenny Cataldo with the first couple of minutes of her story. Susanna Hoffs is a founding member of the 80s group, The Bangles. Fifty years ago, she was just a kid growing up in Los Angeles, which we all know means spending a lot of time in the car, driving around, listening to the radio. We were just driving through Los Angeles when the song came on. Was it there? June, another sleepy, dusty Delta day. I was out chopping cotton and my brother was baling hay. I was immediately transfixed by it. It's as if she's right there beside you when you hear it. It is so close and so real. And Mama hollered at the back door, y'all remember to wipe your feet. And then, of course, the narrative. And then she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge. Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. The song is haunting for sure. A southern family sits around the dinner table talking, and the biggest news is that a local boy named Billy Joe McAllister jumped off a bridge into the nearby river and died. It's tragic, and yet the way the family talks about it is oddly casual and indifferent. And there's kind of this juxtaposition of ordinary talk around the dinner table with her family, her parents, and her siblings. Well, Billy Joe never had a lick of sense. Pass the biscuits, please. And that's juxtaposed with this mystery that keeps unfolding and unraveling. The family doesn't seem to care that much about the tragedy, except for this young woman, the narrator of the song. She hasn't said a word at the table and is noticeably upset. 
mama said to me, child, what's happened to your appetite? I've been cooking all morning and you haven't touched a single bite. It's right here that you start to wonder about her. What does this woman know? And why does she care? Said he'd be pleased to have dinner on Sunday. Oh, by the way. You can hear the rest of that award-winning story at Studio360.org. Coming up. The graphic designer Bonnie Siegler takes me through some high points in the art and design history of American protest. In the 60s during Vietnam, there's one sign that I loved that said, um, bombing for peace is like f***ing for virginity. That's next on Studio 360. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, offering a language program that uses interactive dialogue and speech recognition technology to teach a new language, like Spanish, French, or Italian. Babbel is available in the App Store or online at babbel.com. Studio 360. So here we are at 8 and a half headquarters. <laughs> Welcome. And uh, you've been here, you were you were in New York City for years and years, and now you're here in uh, utopian Westport, Connecticut. <laughs> yes, and these are garage doors. It used to be a mechanic shop. So these were the two, this is where the two cars were originally. I'm in Connecticut visiting an old friend, Bonnie Siegler, whose current design firm is called Eight and a Half. She is one of today's most prominent graphic designers. She and her firms have designed tons of books and magazines and logos you know, like ones for Saturday Night Live and Late Night with Seth Meyers. And she just published her own timely book about the history of design. Design not to sell stuff, but to promote urgent political ideas. It's called Signs of Resistance, A Visual History of Protest in America. It chronicles the history of protest art from the revolution in 1776 to now. In her studio, some of her past design work hangs on the walls. Current and former logos for This American Life and Orbits and Air America Radio, that progressive network from the early 2000s that had shows hosted by Al Franken and Rachel Maddow and Mark Maron. Also, the logos for 30 Rock and The Daily Beast. There was a show of my work in, on Cape Cod. And they framed all of these. And then when the show came down, they gave them to me. And I was like, okay, I'll put them up. So um, eight and a half. Now, one thinks, if one is, you know, even a bit of a movie snob of the Fellini movie about movie making, is that why you called this place eight and a half? No. Um, It was a nice coincidence. Um, My first company that I founded with my partner, Emily Oberman, was called Number 17. And we were together for 18 years. And when we split up, I changed the name to Eight and a Half because now there was only one of us instead of ah, two. But if if not for the Flooney movie, you might not have done that, right? I don't know. Number 17 was also the name of a film, a Hitchcock film. So really? it worked out very nicely because, huh. you know, I only work with the best directors. So uh, this book, Signs of Resistance. Yes. Uh, I'm guessing that this wouldn't have happened if... A different president had been elected uh, two years ago. That is correct. It was inspired by the election. How, but how did it come? I mean, you're mainly a designer. You don't, yeah. You're not mainly an author. How did, how did you decide to do this book? I've gotten involved with politics a little, starting with Air America Radio. And then I 
did a fundraiser for Obama twice and for Hillary last year and some other politicians around the country. And then after the election, I was just so full of rage and anger <laughs> that I started looking at what people had done in the past when confronted with these difficult situations. So I just started doing research for my own edification. Huh. And then I was asked to speak at a conference. They asked me to talk about the future of design. Uh-huh. At the time, I was so frustrated. I didn't know what next week would look like in this current climate. So I couldn't talk about the future in any way. And I, I said, I have no idea. <laughs> so, uh, how about if I talk about the the history of design. Right. It was essentially that, but with a specific slant. So as you were immersing in these, you know, 300 years, almost 250 years of, of protest signs and imagery, did you come to conclusions about how the styles had changed? Yes. The simplest ones remained the strongest over 250 uh-huh. years that join or die, most people would recognize. Or, or if I described it, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I saw that. Well, speaking of that one, describe it. So it's a drawing of a snake cut up into eight pieces, and each piece meant to represent a colony. But then underneath it says, join or die, and it was to get the colonies to come together for the French and Indian War. And it was illustrating this editorial that Ben Franklin had published about that, and he may or may not have created that? That's how it's always credited, Credited that he drew it. And the thing that has been consistent throughout from the 1754 Benjamin Franklin one is one singular image that you can remember, you can picture in your mind, and as few words as possible. And those have been the most successful posters throughout time. But what's interesting, I didn't know until I looked, read your book and, and saw this and looked into it, that, this, that it, was, it was all about, like, let's join with the British to beat the French, yes. right? And then 10, 20 years later, it becomes reversed, this re- yes. revolutionary uh, thing. And I was trying to think about the other examples of that, of this kind of recontextualization over time. And actually, the peace symbol in the Vietnam War, you know, that... Mercedes symbol, basically, (laughs) uh, was a ban the nuclear bomb uh, design from 10 years earlier. Yes. uh, Which isn't totally different, but it wasn't made for the Vietnam thing. Yes, absolutely. And Rosie is a whole different crazy story. Yeah. Yeah, which I didn't know anything about. So Rosie the Riveter described that famous image. So the image is of a woman showing her muscle, and it says, we can do it. Um, and she's wearing a red and white polka dot bandana, and it's always been referred to as Rosie the Riveter. That's how we all know it, and it was kind of a feminist icon. And the assumption was it was a, it was during World War II, and it was to get women to work in the factories but it wasn't and encourage them. Thing, yeah. No, it wasn't a protest poster, but it was a recontextualization because actually it was never used. It wasn't feminist at all. It wasn't pro women, and it wasn't to recruit women to work in the factories. It was just done for a Westinghouse break room, and. It was hung in a Westinghouse break room for two weeks just to get the whole team to work harder together. And then it came off the wall and it vanished for 40 years. And then someone found it and was like, you know, this kind of looks feminist-like. In the 80s? In the 80s. Wow. It has nothing to do with Rosie the Riveter, which was a popular song in the 40s. Rosie, the Riveter, Rosie, 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 Rosie. on the assembly line. And it uh, has been used ever since for the last thirty years as a as various versions of feminist. Yes, and we've seen it recently at the women's marches. Various versions, absolutely. And you have some of those in this. Book. Yes, uh, it's really compelling. And and my favorite one is actually the headline. Instead of "We can do it," is "Up Yours," because they recognize that this symbol could be interpreted differently. Right, right. <laughs> Not all the uh, posters and signs in here are uh, 
have images at all. There's this amazingly great one from 1968. This is this Memphis sanitation strike. Yes. It's just these big red letters, I am underlined a man. This was always a mystery, right? Why is the am underlined? Why is the emphasis on that word? But I think it came from this incredibly popular abolitionist symbol, which asks, am I not a man and a brother? And it has an African-American man kneeling in chains. From like 1800. It, older, seventeen, the late 1780s. Uh-huh. No, and this is this is such an extraordinary thing because it's so simple, and and you have this picture, this big two-page spread picture of hundreds of guys holding this sign, which is like a chant. It's, it's extraordinary, crazy powerful. And this was the, why Martin Luther King was in Memphis on April 4, 1968. Exactly. And got killed supporting exactly. these uh, strikers. You are reminding. Not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. It it gave me chills when I came across from the sun. It's so powerful. And we have no idea who designed this. No. Just some guy in the, or woman. In the print shop. Or in the print shop or the... The union or whatever. Correct. But someone came up to me at a talk I was giving in D.C. and told me he had designed a font based on this typeface. Huh. And it's called Martin. Earlier, uh, Ben Franklin used an image of that snake. And that's very powerful, obviously. Uh, As you're thinking about protest art, did some of your own... Are you always want an image, don't necessarily want an image? What do you think? I think it depends what you want to say. I mean... You have one second to get someone's attention, really. So that's the biggest thing to think about. So if the image or the words, it could be just an image, it could be just words, but if they get your point across in a clearer way, like this is one of the most powerful, which is a flag that the NAACP hung outside its headquarters in 1936. And all it said is, a man was lynched yesterday. And every time they got news of a lynching from the South, they hung this flag. So people walking down Fifth Avenue could see it and have to deal with it. Which is brilliant. Brilliant. But if it had an image on it, it wouldn't make sense and it wouldn't be as powerful. So it depends on the situation, but keeping it as simple as you can and not cluttering it up, I think, is is the main rule. The the pussy hat of 2017, which you have in here as well, which I didn't even realize until you pointed out in this book that that was an answer to the Trump had his hat, so this is a hat. I'm stupid. I didn't get no, no. that. I think, it, I think it was two things. I think there was definitely that, but I think it was more that he spoke of grabbing pussies. And so we had to own that and make it our own and make it powerful and against him. Right. We have the pussies <laughs> and right. we're wearing them. And then, oh, you have your hat, we have our hat. Yeah. There's a, a simplicity in it that's kind of consistent even as the styles change. Obviously, 1840 looks different than 1970. But there's a kind of uh, consistency until Vietnam when there's more like, you know, I just did this with magic markers myself kind of thing. There, well, it works both ways, though. Vietnam was really when designers and artists stepped up to the plate and started participating. Really? And that hadn't that, happened earlier? I mean, artists were hired right. to do posters for right. different things. And so artists and designers were like, wait, I'll make a poster. I'll express myself this way through protest. It hadn't really happened yet. And what about just... Protest signs, that uh, handwritten, was that a thing in, you know, the 1930s against American intervention in Europe? Or, or? No, no. I mean, the all the suffragette stuff, for example, which is a chapter, 
is more printed right. at a print shop. Like they would go to the print shop and have them do it. So it wasn't designed per se. Right, but it was professionally but produced. But it was professionally produced, exactly. Uh, and, and that changed. Uh, and, and the other thing that was introduced during Vietnam is humor, which wasn't really used at all until then. Really? To change minds and influence people. That's interesting because there's, of course, the whole history of political cartoons and Thomas Nast in the late 1800s and so forth. Yes, political cartoons, but not it didn't translate into to people protest. walking. Yeah, to protests. Huh. That's interesting. So that that's really just the last 50 years. Yes. There's that one with Joan Baez and her sisters um, that says, girls say yes to boys who say no, encouraging boys to say no to the draft. Yeah, which was kind of a brilliant uh, Lysistrata-ish <laughs> move on their part. Absolutely. Did you come across any like, whoa, look at that, like racy protest sign from 1928? Not from 1928, but in the 60s during Vietnam, there's one sign that I loved that said, um, bombing for peace is like f***ing for virginity. So they definitely introduced that way of thinking. Right. And then there's memes. That is a new form of poster. You know, photo manipulation. This is my favorite one, which has Angela Merkel talking to Donald Trump from their first meeting. With, and with little, like, comic book captions. Speech uh, bubbles. Speech bubbles, yes. And Angela Merkel says, what did I tell you about hiring Nazis? And Donald Trump says, not to. And Angela Merkel says, and what did you do? And Trump says, hired Nazis. It's just and, and so with social media, and this is an example of it, I mean, the metabolism of protest art is incredibly quick, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. Th- this can be uh, invented proliferated, propagated, and go away all within weeks or months. Yeah, this could have been posted that night. Right. Because we all saw that image. We all saw that uncomfortable meeting. Right. So you really don't think that the digital age and the post-poster age and everything, and we all stare at screens all day age, has reduced the effectual quality of... I think more people seeing it is the most important thing. I really do. I personally love posters and I love making posters and I love seeing it big and I think that's incredibly powerful but you know yeah time marches on (laughs) it's not protest art but I I think of that extraordinary photograph in 2016 of the black woman protesting a police violence police killing of a black guy in uh, Baton Rouge and you have her standing there in her sundress being with these two heavily armored police officers approaching her it it's an extraordinary, iconic image, and that became viral as if it were a work of protest. Absolutely. Art, right? No, it, it definitely did because of the absurdity of an unarmed woman being approached by this military presence. Right. And, and you put it across in a very smart way from this 50-year-old photograph. Describe that. So that was a young woman. I think she was 17, and she went to a peaceful protest at the Pentagon in 1967, and she saw these boys who were her age with these, what kind of? Bayonet rifles. Bayonet rifles, um, pointing them at all these peaceful protesters, and she just went up to them with a flower in her hand, and then her arms open wide, like, really? I know you. You know me. How could you possibly be pointing a gun at me? Right. And I just, I love that they're saying, no, you cannot intimidate me. Bonnie Siegler, thank you very much. Thank you. Signs of Resistance is on sale wherever you buy books right now. And Bonnie's got another terrific new book called Dear Client, This Book Will Teach You How to Get What You Want from Creative People. And Bonnie also gave me a show and tell about how she designed the logo for Late Night with Seth Meyers. To listen to that, go to our site, studio360.org.
Coming up, deconstructing Nancy, that cheerful, indomitable little girl from the funny papers. She'll be grumpy about something until she gets ice cream. And I see a lot of myself in that. More than eight decades after her inception, for the first time, Nancy is being done by a female artist. I don't know, I feel like she was a unabashed twerp way before that character prototype existed. That's next on Studio 360. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, a language app that teaches real-life conversations in a new language, like Spanish, French, or German. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons are available in the App Store or online at babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com. Studio 360. I grew up reading the funny pages every day in my hometown paper, the Omaha World Herald. Blondie, Dondie, Little Abner, and Nancy. Today, newspaper comics seem more and more like pretty quaint artifacts of the last century, like the print versions of the daily newspapers themselves. All the glory has migrated to graphic novels, which win literary prizes and get adapted by Hollywood and Broadway. And comic book superheroes, of course, dominate the movie box office. Still, there is a passionate community that reads the newspaper strips every day and takes them very seriously. So that when something happens to how some venerable character is drawn, the fans react emphatically. Studio 360's Evan Chung has one of those stories. Something happened this April that sent shockwaves down the creases of the funny pages. It was the biggest controversy to hit newspaper comics since Mary Worth had a stalker who drove off a cliff in 2006. And caught in the kerfuffle were two of the industry's most venerable figures, a spiky-haired girl named Nancy and her pal Sluggo. Nancy, what do you want out of life? To be famous without having to work. You? I just settled for not having to work. Seems innocuous enough. But that quiet little comic heralds a major change. For the past few decades, the comic strip Nancy has been kind of maudlin, with religious overtones and surprisingly frequent tributes to dead country musicians. But now, Nancy has been rebooted. And it's completely unsentimental. It's even meta. I'm sick of all these reboots and restarts. Why can't something that's gone stay gone? Look, I know you hate pollen, but that's still a pretty harsh way to talk about spring. The internet has a lot of feelings about this. Here's a typical comment. I miss the sweet, sunny, and bright feel of the old Nancy. The new Nancy seems to have a negative vibe. Yeah, because she's a jerk. I'm Olivia James, and I'm the writer and artist for Nancy. The Nancy I love best is a little girl who's pretty salty about things, fundamentally an optimist, solving problems to get what she wants. She's like an optimistic jerk. Nancy is also a girl, and Olivia James is the first woman to draw her in the character's 85-year history. Olivia James is actually a pseudonym, and at her request, we're altering her voice. She says she wants to maintain her privacy and to keep the Nancy brand completely separate from her webcomic, which is very different in tone. And it was that webcomic that led the syndicate behind Nancy to offer her the job. 
when they brought up this idea to me and were like, hey, is this something you'd consider? I was like, yes, absolutely. Just as a huge slobbering fan. If the idea of slobbering Nancy fans surprises you, then you haven't been paying attention. We're in the middle of a Nancy renaissance. A renaissance, I guess. It's true, Nancy isn't beloved like Calvin and Hobbes. You don't see plush Nancys clinging to windshields a la Garfield. And it's not even the butt of jokes like the soap opera comics. Ah, Rex Morgan, MD. You have the prescription for the daily blues. Nancy has just kind of been there. But if you think Nancy is irredeemably lame, maybe you're just reading it wrong. I would just call it a quintessential comic strip on many, many levels. My name is Mark Newgarden, and I'm the co-author of How to Read Nancy. And my name is Paul Karasik, and I am the other co-author of How to Read Nancy, The Elements of Comics in Three Easy Panels. How to Read Nancy came out last fall. It's a dense, almost scholarly book that argues that there's much more going on in Nancy between the lines. Showing examples of Nancy really illustrates the essence of the language of comic strips. It's sort of a how-to manual on how not to make stupid mistakes. Ernie Bushmiller, who created the character in the strip back in the 1930s, um, was really a one, on a one-man mission to make you laugh. He was considered among his peers as one of the great gag artists of all the times, one of the great gag creators. In 1925, when he was just 19 years old, Ernie Bushmiller inherited somebody else's comic strip. It was called Fritzy Ritz, and it was about a sexy, airheaded flapper. But after drawing Fritzy's romantic adventures for eight years, Bushmiller thought his strip needed a jolt. And eventually... This little girl showed up, popped up behind a couch on January 2nd, 1933, proclaiming herself Nancy. There's a lot of humor in here into just how different she looks from Fritzy Ritz, her aunt. Aunt Fritzy's like a pinup bombshell. She's got flapper clothes and very sexy long eyelashes. And Nancy has for her face like two dot eyes, which are... <laughs> They're kind of creepy looking. Something really clicked with this character. The public let Bushmiller know pretty quickly that there was something about this kid. This feisty little girl character was only supposed to last a week. But like a Depression-era Urkel, the side character became the star attraction by popular demand. Poor Aunt Fritzy was demoted, and the strip was officially retitled Nancy in 1938. Well, at first look, Nancy appears to be just a simple spiked-haired, slot-nosed kid, but in fact, she's a problem-solver. She's also impetuous, argumentative, volatile, and all through this, she remains very much a kid. That is, she loves cookies on the top shelf and she hates school. Perfect comic strip character. Now Nancy just needed a perfect comic foil. So in 1938, Bushmiller introduced her to a rough-looking bald kid with a Bronx accent. My name is Sluggo Smith. I'm new around here. Want to be my goyle? Sluggo is Nancy's best friend. He's got a cap on. He's similar to Nancy. He's maybe more of a slouch. He's apparently an orphan, yet lives in his own home, which is in seriously dilapidated condition. Which is uh, one of the things I'm going to be changing in my incarnation of Nancy. Maybe just fewer jokes like, wow, Sluggo's house is really bad. Now Bushmiller had all the elements he needed. Rough-edged Sluggo, 
impish Nancy, glamorous Fritzy, and that's it. No plots, no exquisitely rendered background art, barely any dialogue. Ernie Bushmiller intentionally stripped his strip of all distractions so he could pursue the perfect gag. For the rest of his life, he really worked at honing down the the basics of what a comic strip is. He once said, I want the dumbest guy in the world to be able to read my comic strip and get it as fast as possible. And he would start with the final panel and then work backwards. How could he get there? How could he land the reader as quickly and as smartly to that gag as possible? It's almost like the opposite of a New Yorker cartoon where there's like 3,000 captions that are all equally funny for the picture. I feel like the first two or three panels of uh, Nancy set up the last one so perfectly, where it's, it's really like, yes, it had to be that. I hear you had lunch with that brainy girl today. Yes, she made me pancakes. She's not your type, Sluggo. What do you have in common with her? Indigestion. The best Nancy comics followed a basic premise. Nancy finds a creative way to solve a problem. And so if she's looking at a painting that's tilted and she's sitting in a chair and the first few panels are all her like trying to fix the painting that's crooked and it keeps sliding back and being crooked again. And so the final panel is just her having tilted the chair, looking at the tilted picture. So she solved the problem and it's like the right answer. Ernie Bushmiller paired these minimal setups with artwork that was deceptively simple, zen-like even. The bulk of Paul Karasik and Mark Newgarden's book, How to Read Nancy, some 90 pages of it, is devoted to deconstructing a single Nancy strip that ran August 8, 1959. They break down this minimal three-panel comic into 43 separate components that work together in service of the gag. They have chapters on Sluggo's outfit, the shape of the speech balloons, even the assorted blobs of black ink. In the course of these three brief panels, Bushmiller is using full splotches of black as compositional elements. Bushmiller has calculatedly chosen those spots of black to direct the eye, and we connect these spots of black like a connect-the-dots puzzle to land exactly where he wants us to, at the gag. Don't we lose some of the humor of the gag by dissecting it like this? Of course. I mean, (laughs) we might as well explain a stop sign. But, you know, stop signs are designed and have a high functionality, and um, we we really think about comics the same way. The new Nancy artist, Olivia James, actually poked fun at this academic approach in a recent strip. A frustrated Nancy stands against a blank white background. Then one speech balloon appears, and then another, and another, until she gets crowded out of her own comic. Nancy is iconic. For her simplicity. Hers is a simplicity and not really that defies convention. Excess is not Nancy. represents such an unadorned, I enjoyed that one most of, of all of her so far, actually. There is irony in injecting so much grown-up discussion into a strip that was so purely kid-like. Ernie Bushmiller's characters were completely unadulterated by adulthood. Compare that to the early-onset melancholy you find in his rival strip, Peanuts. I feel depressed. I know I should be happy, but I'm not. Well, as they say on TV, the mere fact that you realize you need help indicates that you are not too far gone. 
There's no Lucy Van Pelt and the Doctor is in in the world of Nancy. There would be a lemonade stand. And even though Ernie Bushmiller grew up as a boy, he managed to capture through Nancy this rambunctious side of girlhood in a way that's resonated with a lot of women, including Olivia James. She'll be grumpy about something until she gets ice cream. And I see a lot of myself in that. I don't know, I felt like she was a unabashed twerp way before that character prototype existed. But at the same time, she's not completely one note. She doesn't hate everything. And she's not angry forever. Do you think Nancy is a feminist character? Oh, heck yeah. She gets what she wants, even though what she wants is ice cream. Ernie Bushmiller worked on Nancy until his death in 1982. A few other cartoonists have continued the strip since then, but now that Olivia James has become the first woman to draw Nancy, she's finding ways to make the strip a bit more reflective of what it's really like to be a girl. Something that I am going to do is bring in female friends for Nancy, because I really don't think she has many in classic Nancy. It's basically her and Sluggo, and female friendship, especially between young girls, is something that a lot of media, not just Nancy, doesn't get right. And so it's something I'm going to try and do is introduce new characters in a way that's respectful to classic Nancy, but also shows that young girls' friendships don't have to be adversarial and can exist. And Nancy's Aunt Fritzy is changing, too. She had never exactly been a feminist hero. Here's how she was described in promotional material from the 30s. Fritzy Ritz, the lassie that's sassy and classy. She's the eye-filling, form-fitting heroine of Ernie Bushmiller's laugh-making comic. As long as they make girls as pretty as Fritzy, boys will be boisterous. Every time somebody rattles for sexy Fritzy to come back, the drawings I have of her, I just draw a poofier sweater on her. By the end, she'll probably be wearing a parka. That's the kind of radical thinking that's getting the internet commenters all worked up. But Olivia James isn't the first cartoonist with a female-centric comic to face criticism. Take the often-mocked comic strip, Kathy. I can't believe they put what you said in the paper. This is a Kathy cartoon. Yeah, that cartoon copied exactly what you said the other day. Chocolate, 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 ack! There's always been a certain percentage of people who hated my work. I'm Kathy Geiswhite. For 34 years, I wrote and drew the Kathy comic strip that ran in newspapers all over the place. Kathy Geiswhite also grew up reading Nancy. I certainly liked that, you know, it was a comic strip that had a girl's name. It just was, it was simple and sweet, but Nancy was kind of bossy and kind of a trickster, and I liked that. When Kathy the comic strip launched in 1976, there was nothing in the funny pages that was drawn by a woman and reflected real women's concerns, like office gender politics and the anxiety of buying swimwear. Especially in the beginning, the comic strip syndicate had a hard time, I think, convincing the newspaper editors that my strip belonged. Even though at least half the people who were reading the newspapers were women, it was a tough sell to sell a strip that was so different and that was so female-focused, yes. Guys White stuck to the kind of subject matter she wanted to portray, and Kathy became one of the most widely syndicated comic strips in the country. But unlike Kathy, Olivia James doesn't have to start from scratch. She's taking over an existing strip with Nancy. Oh my God, she has such a harder job to have to exactly mimic the style of somebody and put an entirely new twist on it while keeping kind of the same rhythm 
I think it's just an unbelievably challenging job. And I think she's doing a great job. If you have Olivia's number, tell her to call me. <laughs> I, can, I can help cheer her on. <laughs> I think the ways in which I'm going to try and keep the spirit of Nancy alive are in the cleanness of the jokes, the simpleness of the lines, the like problem-solving aspect, the things I, I love. But there are some things that you just can't translate. And one example is like Nancy is always solving problems in ways that like we just wouldn't do nowadays. A good chunk of the problems she's solving in classic Nancy, we would just use our phones for. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Nancy learns to program a computer because that's how we solve problems is through technology. You make me feel like I just got a notification that somebody liked a post of mine. You make me feel like I just got a notification that somebody left a comment and shared my post. I love the strip so much that I, I want to bring it to a new generation and I want to translate it into terms they can understand and fewer jokes about Sluggo being poor. Kathy Geiswhite has one piece of very Nancy-esque advice for Olivia James. She's got a giant job. She should buy lots of ice cream. That's my advice. Nancy, what you gonna do today in your adorable way? Studio 360's Evan Chung produced that story. Nancy and Sluggo were played by Mary Wilson and Mike Pesca. You can hear Mike in his regular job on his daily podcast, The Gist, where Mary is the senior producer. And on his new podcast, Upon Further Review. I hope I can get Sluggo to saw our wood today. Hello, Sluggo. Did you see that wood in the yard? Nope. Oh, yes, you did. I saw you see it. Well, maybe you saw me see it. But you ain't gonna see me saw it! And that is it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. He's apparently an orphan, yet lives in his own home, which is in seriously dilapidated condition. Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Oh my God, oh man, you don't want us to be a When even John Waters can't go any lower. I mean, I never tried to top Pink Flamingos. I, I knew that I won an imperial margarine crown of filth. An hour of filth in its many forms. Next time on Studio 360.